0: Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a channel in the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. And today we have the opportunity to chat with Dr. Millington W. Bergeson Lockwood, author of Race Over Party, Black Politics and Partisanship in Late 19th Century Boston. And Race Over Party is published by our great friends at UNC Press this year. How are you doing today, doctor?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you for having me.
0: Very good. Very good. And so um, before we get into uh, Race Over Party, can you um, describe for us your journey to this particular book?
1: Um, sure. So Race Over Party sort of grew out of two directions. Um, it started with um, sort of my long interest in um, antebellum, antebellum pre-Civil War communities of color in the North Um, thinking about those urban communities and how they imagine themselves in the growing nation. Um, And I was always a little bit dissatisfied with how those stories typically ended. And I mean, uh, the caveat to this is a lot of this has changed um, since I started the project. But, you know, all these books typically changed with this sort of or the books ended with this triumphant march of of African-Americans into the Civil War um and that was sort of the last that we um ever heard of them again they that the black politics in the north in the pre civil war period was about anti slavery and that once slavery ends we don't really have a sense of what happens to these communities um and so i was really interested to find out more about the the post civil war history of these places um and then also i as a student of reconstruction um i was really looking for northern african american voices in that history and you know a lot much of that history rightly so is centered on the south um and particularly in rural areas and so coming at it with questions in mind about okay well what happens to these sort of politically vibrant communities like boston after the civil war but also what is their reconstruction story what's their what is the how are they experiencing these post civil war years Um, sort of brought me to race over party. And once I started diving into the sources, um, particularly looking at a lot of the newspaper coverage of political meetings, um, you really saw partisanship emerge as um, a a central node in how these black men and women really thought about their place um, in the body politic and um, the ways in which political party um, becomes the battleground over which um, they're going to talk about um, citizenship and and their rights.
0: I think one of the cool parts about your book, um, and, and really, I think one of the main reasons why when, when I saw your book um, on UNC, I think it was on UNC Press's uh, website or on Amazon, I thought, well, I worked for Boston African American National Historic Site hey guys how we doing um and so um I, I was I was thinking one of the parts that we had always talked about that we were fairly um uh, light content wise on was what happened after uh, you know what what happened in that post um in that post bellum period you know reaching to where you know we talk about the African meeting house for example um you know, what happened around the time that, you know, they moved to a present day Roxbury, you know, what, you know, what happened to the black community. And so um, I definitely appreciate you for, for writing race over party, because what it provides for public historians, I think, um, in and around the Boston area is that it does a couple things, like it provides people, uh, uh, you know, opportunities to know about that past of the late 19th century going into, you know, the, the 20th and folks like, William Bernard Trotter and others, but also it helps us contextualize even present day debates about monuments, uh, because, you know, what, what do we see yesterday, or I guess uh, yesterday evening, you know, what's going on at UNC Chapel Hill? You know, these oh. things are, you know, all uh, uh, in certain ways connected. So I definitely appreciate you for the scholarship on this. Yeah, Thank you. And so um, going forward into the book, can you describe some of your uh, primary characters? Because um, as someone who enjoys studying, you know, the antebellum political uh, culture of, of, of black Bostonians, um, you have some who make it out of um, the, you know, the post 1865 moment. But then you also have those who who who. Um, who were uh, well connected to certain figures, shall we say, um, uh, some through through biology as well. Uh, so, would you be able to talk about some of your primary figures um, in, in the in the text?
1: I mean, absolutely. So, the I mean, the central character in the book is Edwin uh, is Edwin Garrison Walker, who, as you alluded to a little bit in your intro, is, um, is the son of David Walker, the sort of famous um, author of you know his famous appeal. Um, sort of radical anti-slavery document in the 1830s, 1820s and 1830s, and um, Edwin Walker really emerges and comes into his own um, almost immediately at the end of the Civil War. You know, he's one of the first black men elected to the Massachusetts legislature, um, and then continues to sort of follow this trajectory um, throughout the late 19th century until his death in the early years of the 20th. Um, and he remains throughout his career really committed to um, a politics of race first, where um, in his view, African-Americans should place sort of race, racial interests and civil rights above all other interests. And that includes political affiliation. So he's one of the first voices to be really critical of um, particularly the Republican Party um, even you know from his first first years as a legislator all the way until his death, and so he's um, he's a central figure in the book, um, you know, along with others. So I, I also write about you know keeping the theme of biology. I write a lot about James Monroe Trotter, who is William Monroe Trotter's father, um, who uh, is also an sort of ally and compatriot of Edwin Walker. Um, so here I think you see. This link, you know, between David Walker and Edwin Walker, this sort of generations from pre-Civil War to post-Civil War, but then from James to William, this sort of Reconstruction to twentieth um, century, um, these sort of these these connections aren't just ideological, but they really are they're they're physical and familial.
0: And and that particular point is is very very well taken because when I think about. You know how you constructed your book. You know, I, I really enjoyed learning about um, Edwin uh, Garrison Walker because I, I felt like people were so taken with David Walker. It's almost as if they forgot that he had a family, right? Uh, uh, that that you know outlived him, right? You know, uh, because Edwin, I believe, was in the womb of uh, of his mother um, as his father died. Um, And so, you know, he is coming of age as the um, abolitionist movement in in Boston, New England, and and the the greater northern area is really, really, you know, bustling. But as you mentioned that uh, he becomes into prominence in the um, uh, post-emancipation Boston um, timeframe, which I think, um, you know, bridges the the, the gap pretty well, um, but also shows, you know, a lot of times when people talked about uh, voting. Uh, you know, we're we're you know obviously we're in campaign season right now uh, for for many primaries in, in the in the nation uh, right now, and so you know I think sometimes people take for granted, especially living up here, uh, previously living in the north, is that uh, after the Civil War, typically you think about African Americans in the South gaining um, political power, shall we say, and less is thought of what happened to those in the North, those African Americans in the North. And so I think that's another area where, where this book is very, very strong.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, and I think that that raises some interesting questions, right. About how African-Americans in Boston define their citizenship. I think for them, citizenship and voting are, are part and parcel. Like there, there's no, there's no world for them where they can imagine being citizens and not having the right to vote. Um, You know, so you know, Boston has, African-Americans in Boston have been able to vote since before the Civil War. Um, And so voting is part of their political identity. Um, And so they were never, they never, like, they never lived in a moment without that rate, at least this generation that's in the post-Civil War period. Um, And so I think voting is a a crucial way that they understand um, their political world. And I think you see that in particular in their opposition to the 14th Amendment. You know, when Edwin Garrison Walker famously gives a speech decrying the 14th Amendment as this sort of unholy compromise, it's around the fear that if voting isn't connected to citizenship um, in that amendment, that um, any further action is going to be not as comprehensive in terms of protecting voting rights.
0: And because uh, uh, Edwin Garrison Walker, he, the the way that his story was told. He sounded largely like a political pragmatist, um, in the sense that he he took opportunities, right? You know, so so partisanship for him was not as important as you know. I, I guess in in correct me if I'm wrong in, in my interpretation of this. Um, it sounded a lot like he, uh, a, a Walker wanted what he thought was best for the race, um, and and whether or not that was the Republican party, whether or not that was, you know, uh, uh, working within the patronage uh, system and, and working without it. So, so it seemed like he would do what he thought was best for the race in, in, in ways that, you know, uh, at times put him, you know, on, on the wrong side of particular folks within the Boston political community.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that Walker is, you know, I hate to throw this word around, but he's a you know he's a radical among his uh, among his uh, cohort in Boston, where you know he's really adamant that uh, unless a political party is going to be fully committed to, to to black rights and the interests of black people over all else, then African Americans do not owe them anything. I mean, this is the era where you have folks like Frederick Douglass um, and others talking about, oh well the Republican Party is the ship and everything else is the sea, you know, that like it or not, your best hope is with the Republican Party. And Edwin Walker refuses to, to, to follow that line. You know, for him, um, an ideological commitment to equality and to justice um, trumps political pragmatism. I think his criticism is that the Republican Party is full of these uh, these pragmatists that for the sake of political expediency will compromise on black rights, and he sees that writing on the wall fairly fairly quickly um, in the 1860s. and then um, sadly is sort of proven more and more right as the century continues.
0: And and you're not lying about that because when I when I see his his you know debates about uh, uh, I, I believe you're, you're talking about before the Fourteenth Amendment, um, and, and looking at how. African Americans right because when you think about the Republican Party at this time, right this is right smack dab within you know their among their strongest period within this time frame where where to say that you are not to say that you to, to, to the point where you're an African American uh, 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 political activist and you're saying that you are not going to hold you know hold your Republican weight, that was a rather dangerous thing to do, um, you know, uh within the political realm for someone who had aspirations within the city. Um, and so, you know, could you talk about some of those spats that he did have uh with folks in in, in the community?
1: I mean, sure. I think you do you see particularly a sort of conflicts between Folks like Walker, folks like Trotter and uh, some of the sort of famous names of black abolition in Boston. Like so Lewis Hayden, for example, you know, Lewis Hayden is a staunch Republican after the war and really looks at that party as a as the vanguard of of civil rights. And, you know, and in some ways, Hayden's not wrong. You know, that's the political party of, of Lincoln. It's the, the party of abolition, the party of um, positive reconstruction. Um, that I think folks like Hayden, folks like Douglas, um, are really, really want to celebrate. Um, but I think that for Walker, um, that's a, he looks at that as a cop-out. He said, you know, he, he says that, you know, the African-Americans have a commitment to hold these parties accountable and not just sort of give them any sort of, you know, allegiance based on these sort of past deeds. It's sort of a sense of like, okay, well, what is the party doing for me today? You know, is this the party that's going to stand up for us um, in the future? And he feels that increasingly by the nineteen by the eighteen eighties, especially, that that's not the case. That the Republican Party takes black votes for granted, and isn't willing to really risk its um, political future um, in order to save black lives um, and uh, protect black rights.
0: And I and I mention this because you know some of the like it it, it sounds so eerily similar to uh, almost what, you know, some some say about the modern day Democratic Party right? because a lot of times people, you know, who are Republican uh, today, or maybe politically conservative in general, will say, you know, we're the party of Lincoln. And no, well, that that's, you know, that that's more hyperbolic in the, the time frame that we're talking about is actually true. This is literally the party of Lincoln, right? This is, right. you know, days, years, you know, uh, uh, months, right, after his assassination. So, you know, for you to say that, it, it, oof, you you were definitely uh, uh, on the fringe, shall we say, um, yeah, especially, especially in a city like Boston.
1: Right. Yes, especially in Boston. Right. So for folks to sort of declare political independence and not just declare that you're going to be politically independent, but then turn around by the 1880s like Walker does and support Democrats. Um, It's, it's, it's professional and political suicide. You know, even, you know, by the time Walker dies, he, he says that, right. That he says that, you know, the graveyard of your hopes and aspirations is political independence, that it would have been much easier for him to just tow the party line, stay with the Republican party and reap these rewards. Um, whereas sort of after his election in, 18, in the 1860s, he really never finds equivalent electoral success. Um, and that's largely because of his inability to sort of play by the rules um, in terms of Boston politics and following the Republican Party. You know, even to like, there's this great case where, you know, he, Edwin Walker is a proud supporter of Benjamin Butler, the um, Civil War general turned politician. And when Butler becomes governor, of Massachusetts in the early 1880s, um, he attempts to appoint Walker, um, to fill a vacant, um, judge position and his, that appointment is, uh, defeated by a Republican dominated, um, executive council in, in Massachusetts. Um, and then sure enough, like Butler tries again with George Ruffin, famous African-American, um, but Republican. And that and that nomination is is approved, um, and so Ruffin. Now we know, if you know your Boston history, we now know we know George Ruffin well, right? As the first mm-hmm. African American elected, or first African American judge in Massachusetts. Well, that that should have been Edwin Walker. So if if the, these questions of partisanship don't get in the way, Walker is the one we now know is the first Massachusetts judge um, rather than Ruffin, and so we can see how. You know, partisanship not only does it affect Walker's sort of material condition in the eighteen eighties, but it affects his legacy and how he and how he's remembered.
0: Right, and like I said, there were political consequences for his actions, and um, and, and and you know. Like you said, for, at times it was political suicide uh, for him to take the stances that he did, especially with someone uh, as far as how African-Americans perceived him as as Governor Butler. Um, and then also, I thought the part that I hope that folks don't um, under under um, under remember or not understand is how relatively short um, the governorships were, or at least it seemed mm-hmm. like it. Um, because typically I think we're used to four year uh terms for governors and i guess what is it, 6 years for senators uh but was governor i might have just read this wrong and so i apologize if i did but was the governorship only like 2 years because i felt like it was a quick transition to go from uh to go from walker to ruffin
1: yeah yeah no i mean it's almost year to year um, right right yeah the elections yeah no and so um so politics can shift and move very quickly um yeah,
0: right. And so, um, because, like I said, Butler was a very, he, you know, not only like the actual term, you know, Democrat will bring you, uh, uh booze and such, in the within the black community yeah. at this time. But you know, he was not a relative friend to, uh, at least, the majority of African Americans. Uh, uh, you know, this individual case notwithstanding. So, um, you know, with that as well, I thought, you know, that part was well, also, no, I mean, yep, yep.
1: Yeah. Sorry. No, I mean, I think Butler, Butler does have a lot, like he's sort of a famous, um, character within, um, yeah, he has the black an interesting story. Yeah.
0: Right?
1: Well, because of his, you know, he's sort of touted as, um, sort of creating the category of contraband during the civil war that mm-hmm. allowed fugitives to, to be free. And he's one of the sort of radical, um, voices of reconstruction. And, and so I think he does, um, you know, Butler's sort of maligned, um, for better or for worse for corruption and some other things. But, um, in, in the eyes of a lot of African-Americans, like Butler has sort of earned his, um, earned their loyalty through some of the service, um, uh, to black rights. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Right. And, and so, right. And, and yeah, absolutely. Can't, uh, overshadow, um, the 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 contraband nature, uh, you know, going back to Fort Monroe um, during during the Civil War, um, because yeah, it, it just seemed that you know he, it, it, like you had mentioned before, the fact that you know Walker, because Walker seemed to be very melancholy about that too, uh, about his his uh, opportunity to effectively lost to um, be to be, I guess, a, a black first. Um, I was not sure if they were cognizant of those kinds of things uh back then but um to but but he was at least aware of uh, some form of political significance of of this too um and uh as as well apart that talking about monuments too um someone like uh uh Crispus Attucks right you know is is mm-hmm. an important figure in Boston history uh, black boston history especially especially when you talk about you know the nature of masculinity and the nature of manhood um, in this time frame, too, especially when you talk about manhood and citizenship being intertwined and interwoven, especially in a place where, mil- you know, military, you know, as I kind of call them, you know, black military, black patriotic masculinity ran within all forms, you know, because it, go back to, you know, Prince Hall and the Prince Hall Masons. And and going all the way up to this period, too, because I was, I think, also another area that was very interesting, too, when you talk about monuments and commemorative spaces.
1: Yeah, no, for, for sure. And I think that um, questions of manhood and masculinity are tied up in a lot of this, um, the rhetoric of independent politics. So you'll hear folks like Walker, but not just him, but a lot of the other voices talking about, you know, that for African-American men to really assert their manhood. It means to be politically independent, that, um, you know, true manhood means voting for the party that's best going to represent um, African-Americans and that to do otherwise is is subservient, um, that to that part of expressing your sort of free, powerful masculinity is through independent politics.
0: Exactly. And because that, you know, independence means, you know, you know, because, you know, every now and again, you'll see, you know, the, you know, you know kind of like the master slave kind of narrative, even in post emancipation politics where, you know, I'm, you know, not, you know, enslaved to, you know, such and such party, or I'm not enslaved to a particular kind of politics. So, so, so definitely I'm on that particular point because when you look at, you know the importance of the Prince Hall Masons to the city, and, and you look at the the history of um you know the history you know you look at the uh, the 54th Massachusetts right you have you know them being a very important piece uh, interwoven into the fabric of of Black Boston life too, and then you have um the 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 commemoration that comes about too. So would you be able to give us a brief breakdown about how um the 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 monument. Um, on um, Beacon Hill, uh, becomes uh uh comes into fruition too, and the struggle to make that happen.
1: Uh, the Christmas Addicts monument.
0: Oh, I'm I'm well, I'm speaking uh kind of kind of uh Christmas Addicts, but also looking at uh the Shaw Memorial too, uh because um that's also an important piece that I that I definitely hope people uh either know and or remember.
1: Yeah, I mean, so the the legacy of the 54th and of black um civil right a civil war service you know, sort of throughout all of this, right? So there are, um, you know, v- veterans, a lot of these, a lot of the characters I write about in the book, you know, served in the Civil War. Um, James Monroe Trotter was a lieutenant um, in, during the Civil War. Um, and so that this, that military service is really ever present as, um, it, as in part of their argument about why, um why they should be politically independent? So they'll they'll talk a lot about well, you know, really it wasn't it was Af- it was black soldiers that freed the slaves. It was black soldiers that brought about this new nation. Um, that they don't owe the nation or the party anything. If anything, the nation and the party owes them. That it was their blood, their deaths that um, that brought about these changes. Um, and so rather than and and they' so so they'll really use that military service um to make arguments for um why the political party should respect them
0: and 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 that's why I thought this part was uh pretty interesting because of those particular reasons uh because i, I always you know because a lot of the work that i uh personally have done has been in this particular uh, uh area, and so I was really you know i, I was very Happy to see uh, such a prominent role, you know the the place of commemorations played, but also um, something that I never actually thought about that uh, I, I like to ask you about too. Um, your your sixth chapter I thought was very interesting, considering um, and, and just to let y'all know, uh, the sixth chapter of uh, of the of race over party is entitled for Ireland's cause: Black and Irish political coalition building, and and if you know anything about. Uh, uh, black and, and, and Irish American relations, uh, it's been um, a mixed bag at best. Um, and so, um, would you be able to talk to us a bit about you know the the coalitions and and the the, the political um, nature of you know the the policies of, of African American or Black Bostonians and and and, uh, um, and Irish folks in, in the community at this time?
1: Sure. I mean, that, so chapter six was really like, it was, that was one of the most fun chapters to write. It definitely because, seemed that way. <laughs> yeah. Cause, Cause as you, I mean, as you said, you know, that, the history of when we think about uh, African-American and Irish Boston, the word cooperation and coalition and alliance is not usually, uh, it's not typically the words we use. Um, and so it was really exciting to, to discover this history. I mean, not, you know, I discovered it for the book. But um, and then write a little bit about um, you know what was going on and it's it's really I think it's a powerful moment um, in the city's history that we need to talk more about and so uh, for those who haven't read the book they um, in the 1880s um, African Americans support um, the cause of Irish independence in Ireland and they support the candidacy of Hugh O'Brien the first Irish-born mayor of Boston um, and they become sort of powerful figures. Um, in, in support of Irish independence. Um, and you'll, and you'll often find Irish nationalists and African-Americans sharing the stage, um, at political rallies, um, and that they do for, for this moment in the 1880s, um, really do forge, um, forge some alliances and forge some, um, powerful connections, really bringing together the struggle for Irish freedom along with the struggle for African-American freedom in America. Um, and as the chapter progresses, you know, there's um, you really see some of these um, occasions where, um, for example, uh, black Bostonians uh, host a fundraiser uh, and they send money to uh, to Ireland for Charles Parnell's home rule movement. Um, and so this is African-Americans, black Bostonians um, sort of scraping together their hard earned resources and then sending those um to a foreign independence struggle, um, and then the chapter, you know, culminates with the construction of the Crispus Attucks Monument, which a lot of people know and they see sort of on the, um, you know, it's on the, on the Boston Common, sort of right off the the, the main strip there. And you, uh, you know, uh, millions of people pass that monument every day um, without knowing it's history. And that monument really grew out of this. Um, this cooperation, you know, that it grew out of a uh, need to celebrate the, some of the Irishmen who died during the Boston Massacre alongside Crispus Attucks. And so here you have sort of in stone um, a sort of permanent monument to this moment. And, and so that's what, what I really liked about telling that story is, you know, every time now that I see that monument, that's a monument not just to deaths during the War for American Independence. You know, but it's a monument to um black and Irish Bostonian unity. Um that I, that I think is important to remember. Um you know, as we as we talk about race in Boston and um and how fraught that topic continues to be, I think it's important to have touchstones um like that monument to uh to think about ways and times in which thing the story could have been different.
0: Exactly. Because when you, like you mentioned before, you know, the the, the fraught nature of, of black and Irish relations, right. There's really only been a couple times where, uh, outside of the story where it's been fairly strong, uh, at least in this century. And that was, you know, the, the history of someone like, uh, Robert Morris, um, and his connection to, um, to, to Irish, uh, folks in, in the community, but really outside of that example there, there aren't that many. So it's good to see that there were, um, examples of coalition building and also, um, you know, so some cooperation and actual, you know, tangible uh, um, uh, things that were able to be taken out of that. Um, And I thought also uh, an area of the book that I thought I had, I had not really thought about too much, but was so, so profound and important was the anti-lynching activism of Black Bostonians as well. Because as we trek through the 1880s, and um folks like Ida B Wells and Frederick Douglass um are are speaking of the southern horrors that it, that are um uh, that uh, that is southern lynching and and american lynching um as a whole you know black bostonians do play a role uh, significantly in anti-lynching activism uh, so would you be able to narrate that story a bit for for the listeners
1: yeah sure so you know, by the 1890s, um, you know, black Bostonians are, are some of the first uh, black communities, you know, in the north to sort of actively oppose um, this and actively uh, support anti-lynching campaigns um, that they really start to become very agitated um, over what they're seeing as the rising tide of black death um, at the hands of lynch mobs across the south. And so they host um Ida b wells, um, and they um, they become really sort of animated by anti-lynching and they connect anti-lynching to part of this um this narrative of black independent politics. so they they point to lynching as sort of the ultimate um betrayal um by the Republican party that you know, even while republican go- governments continue to dominate the federal um The presidency in congress um this uh, lynching is is increasing and so they often use that um as a way to sort of shame the republican party um and they become um very very vocal anti-lynching activists um by the by the turn of the 20th century um where they're going to raise money to bring the baker family um to to boston the baker family um, the father was a postmaster and the family is sort of attacked and their house burned and their newborn child, uh, murdered along with the father, um, in this, in this lynching. And, uh, the black Bostonians will raise money to bring that family to Boston. Um, so that's sort of a famous anti-lynching case. Um, but there are others that, you know, they really become outspoken, um, against, against lynching, um, even sort of even from the very early years in the
0: 1890s right and and you know i thought it was really interesting to to see the the notation of someone like Ida B. wells who um who came to to boston i believe during this period too um to 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 rally support for her cause um and, and, and because i say that because when i think about the political culture of black women in this time frame too um you know, you had uh, uh, it was a Josephine St. Saint, um, Saint Pierre Ruffin, um, mm-hmm. I believe was her name, who was, you know, one of, I think she founded uh, uh, the Ida B. Wells Club in Boston, too. And she was one of uh, Ida B. Wells' uh, earliest uh, supporters um, uh, in the north and in Boston behind, you know, folks like T. Thomas uh, Fortune. But here in Boston, she was one of the most prominent people so, as kind of like that of a segue too, because we're also pushing towards what we, you know, they may not have known at the time, but we now know, uh, pushing towards, uh, um, you know, the the women's right to vote, um, or at least within the nineteenth uh, amendment. But can you speak a bit about uh, uh, black women's politics during this period too, and, and their and their and their push?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, so black women are sort of are 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 in this book. Um, sort of throughout, but feature most prominently in the 1890s, um, where you get women like Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin, who found this women's era um, club, you know, and she's going to start the women's era newspaper um, and going to be one of the founding members of some of these larger national uh, black women's organizations. And and the thing about, you know, black women in the vote in Boston is that black women vote, like that, that women can vote in Boston um, for school board elections. Um, and so, this the relationship between women and the ballot isn't a figurative thing in Boston that they are um, that, that they are voters um, in, in at least some sort of small extent um, and so they they're very outspoken about the the role of the vote and the place of partisanship um, you know I fa- I I spend some time writing about um, Pauline Hopkins who is uh you know best known as a journalist and novelist and playwright. Um, but she knows, I mean, in her sort of famous book contending forces, um, which is often regarded as this sort of romantic novel, um, she has some very pointed chapters, um, within the book, looking at, um, looking at, looking at questions of black partisanship, um, that, um, and, and using fiction to, to document this narrative of, of black independent politics. And so, um, I think you do have so. um, independent politics is sort of firmly entrenched in in some of the women's politics in Boston.
0: And and that's really good to uh to to really harp on because you know sometimes people think that uh you know it, it, women didn't really have you know that obviously that they were politically organizing and and such like that but as if you know the the vote um you know that there wasn't really much else besides the vote that you could do uh prior to uh, uh 1920 but you know black women were you know largely organizing themselves and and like you mentioned that they had the right to vote in um in particular ways but you know that wasn't the only thing that uh that they necessarily were uh, uh were, were worried about right that yes they wanted right. you know the outright right to vote but also that there were ways that while they were, you know, pushing towards that, that there were things that they were getting engaged in too, and they were not passive observers to what's going on, but they were active agents um, to 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 change the world for for how they wanted. And so, uh, th- th- I would say definitely the most prominent would have been um, um, Ms. Josephine, uh Josephine uh, Saint Pierre Ruffin, um, who. Who's politically organizing well before this this time frame too? Because she was doing work um, even during um, during the latter antebellum era, going into the 1860s and 1870s uh, as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, and they're there. They're always they're always present. You know, I mean, sadly, some of the nature of just the way that um, women's voices are documented is that you 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 see them a lot. But you don't hear them too often. Um, so, like the newspapers will often document their presence at a meeting, but we don't necessarily hear their voices. And so, I was I'm really excited for opportunities and for the um, to when you when you can actually um, hear them, not just see them.
0: And and you know, I as I have a uh, site, you know, black women uh, uh, hoodie. That's coming in the mail today, you know, that's you okay. know, that's largely, you know, what we try to do here. Um, you know, we always like to cite black women and to to uplift their voices and amplify them whenever we uh we get the chance to. So a part of the new books and African American Studies channel, we always like to do that. That's always that's always yeah, a thing absolutely. that we like to do for sure, man. Um and so um going into the the final section of of our, uh, chat today. Um, it's, it's crazy. It's 39 minutes of just go by so quickly when you're, you know, in, in having a great, great time talking about a great, great book. Um, would you be able to talk to us a bit about kind of the final, uh, area of the book? Um, when kind of your, your, uh, your, your timeline, uh, begins to wane a bit and we start talking about, you know, education and going into, the latter portion of the, um, of the 19th century going into the 20th?
1: Sure. I mean, so, so at the end of the book, I really sort of write it and I struggled a little bit with how to frame the end of the book. And it really, to me is this, it's the culmination of this, this tragedy, um, which is the sort of faith in, uh, electoral and partisan politics, um, as a vehicle for black progress. And I think, you see, particularly in the left, the final years of Edwin Garrison Walker, you know, where he really like I th- I think the sort of the rise of Jim Crow and the rise of lynching um, really hits a lot of these activists very hard, and they take it, um, you know, rightly so, sort of very, very personally and very like devastating um, to watch the the sort of optimism they had, even if it was sort of a realistic optimism. To watch that that door of progress slowly close um, over the late 19th century, and and to look ahead to the future um, in a world that I sort of argue is outside of formal and electoral politics, to to look towards forging their own national organizations like Niagara Movement, like the NAACP, um, that I I think that that is a culmination of a lot of this race first thinking, you know that if 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 progress is going to be achieved for black men and women in America, it's going to be through black activism, that it's not going to be as part of a interracial political party. It's going to be, um, with black leadership and, and black voices, um, uh, in the forefront. And so I, I read about the end of the book sort of as this, as this tragedy with the silver lining. So there, this sort of defeat of independent politics, or collapse of independent politics as a, as a viable strategy um, to combat uh, r- white supremacy, I think yields the growth of these, um, these other organizations um, that are going to, to become as strong as any political party. Um, and so the book concludes with the rise of William Monroe Trotter as sort of carrying the torch um, of his father, of Edwin Walker, sort of into the next century,
0: and and that's where you coalesce into things, you know that that you don't necessarily talk about, but you know, folks, uh, other scholars who reach into the 20th century nature of Boston, because you know we know uh, William Monroe Trotter, you know, largely as a as a friend to Du Bois and Phi Beta Kappa at Harvard and master's degree from Harvard, and you know. Uh, fighting against the the showing of the birth of a nation um, uh, in Boston and and such like that, and so he's carrying man, the, the multiple mantles of activism, uh, which largely come from this time frame uh, of black par- uh, politics and partisanship um, that that you greatly uh, highlight in this. What I would say is a greatly misunderstood and or just not known period of black activism. Of, of what exactly was the world that black Bostonians fought for in the antebellum era and in the civil war, right? This is the world that they were fighting for. And those who were, you know, some of them like Edwin Garrison Walker, who was, who, who, who was living and, and, and knew, you know, what life was beforehand, you know, they're fighting to change the world, but many of them, you know, they, they were upstarts, you know, they, they were ones who were coming around when, you know, they were, they were, well, we now know is black colleges around, right? And so, you know, they're 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 coming into a different world, but that different world was a world that was created largely by those who were uh, who were within this particular story. Um, and so, with that being said, now that you know we have you know race over party, black politics and partisanship in late nineteenth century Boston completed, you know, you know what. You know what? What what can we look forward to next, if you don't mind me asking, uh, uh, from you? Um, because you know, as sometimes here at the New Books of African American Studies Channel, we always like to not only know what we're what our scholars are, you know, have done, obviously, with the books that they've completed, but we get a little bit uh, uh greedy sometimes. We like to know what's coming up uh, uh, on the pike for you guys and gals.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, so the book just came out in May, so I'm taking a little bit of a breather, trying to. Uh to 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 figure out what's next but uh you know as i don't know your listeners may or may not know that i've been living overseas in malawi for the last couple years and that really made me think a lot about the place of um you know african-americans abroad um in africa in particular and thinking about um the place of black diplomats so um i've got some ideas kicking around about another project looking at um the role of black diplomats so for example um, folks like um uh Douglas, uh Frederick Douglass and others that I write about sort of in the 19th century, a lot of them are gonna become some of the first black diplomats abroad. And I'm very interested in sort of charting that history and and writing a little bit about what it means to represent, you know, not only um African Americans abroad, but then have to simultaneously represent um the United States, um, with all of its fraught, um, racist, uh, legacies. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what's, what's, you know, sort of percolating right now is really thinking about how, um, how issues of race and identity, uh, might coalesce abroad in, in, in the work of some of these, uh, black diplomats.
0: And, and that sounds like a tremendous, tremendous, uh, a a foundation to have because, you know, black, black politicians and and black diplomats are, are something that I think is, you know, within the transnational frame would be a very, very intriguing study to take up. Um, especially even within the the particular period, um, that, that, that your uh, book on Boston highlights as well, because, you know, Political patronage was an important thing going all the way up to the uh, to the Wilson administration in the early 20th century. So I definitely think that, um, that that's a that's a that's a phenomenal work that hopefully, um, you know, once it comes into fruition and you get a publishing date for it, that that you'll definitely consider coming back on the program. It's definitely been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really happy to be able to share the story. Um, I, I hope readers will find it interesting and that it's a, a slightly new take on the Reconstruction era, but also I think um, would, would cause people to think a little bit more about the place of race um, in political parties today. Um, I know that we got an election coming up. Um, uh, all elections are important, but this one's especially important. And, um, you know, I, I know there's always questions about race and political affiliation. So I'd hope that race over party, uh, might give a little bit of historical context to some of these discussions.
0: And for that and much, much more, we have been just, just blessed and graced with the presence of Dr. Millington W. Bergeson Lockwood with his new book, freshly published through our friends at UNC press entitled race over party, black politics and partisanship in late 19th century Boston. And once again, This is your host, Adam McNeil, on the African American Studies channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, folks, over and out.